Well, the other day, uh, Melissa called me, and I was in Dallas for the denomination meeting, and so I was in the hallway where all the business gets done. That's how I've learned there. If you want to get something done, you don't do it in the actual meeting, you do it in the hallway. And so we were out in the hallway talking, I got a phone call. She says, we're at Academy. Those are scary words to hear. Uh, we're at Academy. We're buying shoes for track. And she had, they had tried on all these shoes, and he had found a pair that he liked. And she said, I won't even tell you how much they were. It's embarrassing. But she said, they're this much. And I said, I don't care how much they cost. Buy whatever he wants. All right? Now, after she had fainted and woke back up, <laughs> we started talking about it, and I said, you know, I, I never would say that, you know. But, but here's what I told her. I said, when you go to the cross-country meets, when you go to the track meets, and you watch these kids... Callie's nodding her head because we've been to the track meets and watched Morgan and Sawyer and all these kids run. And it just physically, it's painful to watch somebody run three miles. <laughs> Especially at Seymour where it feels like the entire track is uphill. I don't know how they do, did, did that, but uh, I'm just like, look, if that guy's going to go out there and run three miles at the track meet, two mile, or three miles at the cross-country meet, two miles at the track meet, then a few hours later run the mile, and then every day they practice and they run several miles. If he's going to work that hard for his school, if he's going to work that hard to make himself stronger and do something that so few are willing to do, I'm happy to spend the money on the shoes. You know, Not because I love shoes, but because I love Sawyer. Or what about this? Maybe you've had a sick child, and as they are in the doctor's office with you and the doctor comes in and starts talking, we're going to have to have this test. And then I'm going to have to send you here for this test. Then you're going to have to go here for this test. And maybe in the back of your mind you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of doctors, that's a lot of specialists, that's a lot of tests. We're going to be paying on this the rest of our lives. You know what you think at that point? So what? So what? Bill me. Not because I love medicine or making doctors rich, but because I love my child. When we talked about our building project that's upcoming, and we are working on it, rest assured, we're just trying to put the best uh, proposal before you with all the information that we need. Remember when I talked about the building project during our series on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I said this is going to be expensive. And we all know building a church building in 2023, 2024, whenever we break ground, will be expensive. But we're all going to give, and we're all going to sacrifice. And everybody's, are you all nodding your heads? Okay. Uh, but we're, we're going to all give until it hurts, not because we love buildings, but because we love Christ, because we love each other, because we love the lost. There is a Christian spending that goes far beyond money. There is a Christian spending that goes far beyond time. There is a Christian spending that goes far beyond gifts and talents. It is the very spending of one's life for others. So 
I want to say this, uh, I thought of this actually this morning while I was putting on my shoes, and I thought I don't need to forget this, so I'm going to say it now and hopefully I'll say it again at the end. Um, when you spend your money, you empty, uh, you empty your, your pocket. When you spend your time, you empty your calendar. But when you spend, your, when you spend yourself, you empty yourself. You empty your life. You give your life. The type of Christian spending I'm talking about is the kind of spending Jesus did. The Bible says he didn't empty his calendar. He didn't empty his pocketbook. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. This is the type of love to which we are called. We're going to pick up this idea of spending We've talked about money spending, but now we're talking about something much deeper than that. We're talking about spending ourselves. Your Christian ministry, this is what the big idea of the message is. Your Christian ministry is you spending your life for others. It's you emptying yourself, you spending your life for others. So let's turn in our Bibles, if you have your Bible. Uh, or you can scroll to it on your phone. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 through 21. We'll look at verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start at verse 11. We'll go through verse 21. Your Christian ministry is spending your life for others. We'll see this in our text. Now, Paul uh, is writing to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, did I say 1 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If I said first, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Paul's message and his aim, uh, what he wants the Corinthian church to understand as he writes this text, is that he is happy to spend his life to serve them because he loves them and he wants them to know Jesus. So we're going to talk about, as I break this down, I tried to have all of these start with a P, and I couldn't do it, I tried. But in verse 11, we'll see Paul's place among the apostles. Verses 12 through 13, Paul's proof that he is an apostle. Verses 14 and 15, Paul's plan that he's coming to see this church again. He's coming for a visit. Verses 16 through 19, Paul's purity. He's talking about his motives in his ministry to them. And then this is where I messed up. I, I said, I was like, I need another P word that, that for fear. And all I could think of was phobia, which technically is right but it just doesn't sound quite as well. So Paul's phobia or Paul's fear in verses 20 or 21. So let's go through these. Look at verse 11. We'll talk about Paul's place among the apostles. Paul, again, is pained uh, to be bragging, as he feels like, or boasting. He's boasting in his weakness, but he's telling them about his credentials. He's talked to them about his pedigree as a Jew. He's talked to them about his ministry and all the things that he's done. He says... I've been a fool talking like this, and I'll tell you, it's been hard to preach these sermons where Paul starts boasting, uh, even though he doesn't want to boast. Now that I've studied this so hard, I do feel that awkwardness in his spirit where he's like, I don't want to be telling you all this stuff 
none of us want to be talking about why we are credentialed to do whatever it is that we do. It's embarrassing for him, but he tells them that they forced him to do it. They forced him to do it. Very early on in the letter, if you'll remember, he said, you guys are like living epistles that commend us to the Lord. He says, he's saying to the church, y'all should be commending me to one another. Y'all should be explaining to the people that are rejecting my ministry why they should be listening. Maybe you've had to do that before. You know, oftentimes, the people who might have the greatest ministry to you, they might be abrasive. They might not be the most graceful socially. You know, I have a lot of friends who are pastors that are far more spiritual than I am. I mean, these guys are not just more spiritual, they're, they're not just more godly, they, they, they're men of prayer, um, and they're very smart, they're very intelligent, but the problem they have when, whenever they're pastors, and they do love their people, but they, the problem is they just can't communicate it. They just can't, uh, um, you know, they, they, they make people feel, of course, now I'm making myself feel awkward trying to describe this, but they can't, they cannot, they cannot, they're not smooth. And they don't understand if someone comes in their office and somebody's, and, and, and someone comes to their office and they're upset, they don't have the sort of social intelligence or, or whatever you would call that to, to recognize when someone's upset. And yet these people are very godly, they're very pure in heart, there's no guile within them at all, and so whenever... I've been on staff with guys like this and, think, and those at churches or, or been at churches where someone is struggling in this area and someone comes to me and I'm like, wait a minute though. You're upset with them, but have they really done anything immoral? Um, are they really, are, do, you feel, do you feel like they're godly? You know, and, and I'm, like defending, I'm having to defend or commend them to this person to say, I know they're a little bit awkward socially, but if you'll invest and get to know this person, you will be greatly blessed by them because I've been greatly blessed. You know, uh, just if you can wade past sort of your expectation for what the preacher ought to be. Uh, in, the, in the history of the church, there have been great revivals. And, and uh, thinking of the, the Wells revival in 1908, what they said about the preacher, and I can't remember his name, and it, it probably doesn't matter to him or, or to anybody else, he was just the instrument that God used. But they said this guy, he was painfully shy. He preached the revival sermons that, that kicked off a great revival where they said one night just all these students went to the police station because it was the only place that was open in the middle of the night and they all just sat down there on the steps of the police station and wept over their sin. They said, what do we do? The police, they're like, why did y'all come to the police? They said, y'all were open. They said, go get the preacher. And he came and he was leading all those students to Christ. He, he had a tremendous ministry. They said when that revival ended, he never really did another thing. Painfully shy, painfully awkward. But you know, God can use people like that. Has Paul got some things about him that if he showed up here, we might not really want to listen to him? Apparently, he wasn't a great speaker. There was something about his physical appearance, possibly, that turned people off. They say maybe his eyes were weepy or infected. And remember back then, they didn't even have aspirin. So it was just a different, a different time if you had a malady. And so Paul says, y'all should have been commending me. You're making me commend myself. But I'm not inferior, he says. I was not at all inferior 
to these super apostles, these false teachers who've come in. He says, I'm not inferior to them, even though I myself am nothing. There again, boasting in his weakness. You know, when we think of Paul, he had a different ministry as an apostle, didn't he? Think of how Paul described himself as one untimely born. He wasn't there as one of the 12 walking with Jesus. Paul was persecuting the church. And then on the road to Damascus, he was saved in a most unusual way. But that did not make him inferior. How do we know Paul did not inferior? Uh, did not feel inferior? What did he do at Galatia? What does he say he did in the, in the letter to the Galatians when Peter was basically discriminating against the Gentiles and only sitting with the Jews? Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Paul did not feel inferior in any way. And here he says, I am just as much an apostle as any apostle. Y'all should be commending me for my apostleship, and you're not. You're forcing me to do it. And then he mentions in verses 12 and 13 the proof of his apostleship. He says the signs, in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you, forgive me this wrong. Okay, is Paul really asking for forgiveness? No, I think he's being a little bit sarcastic here. He's saying, you guys had all the ministry that all the other churches have ever had. Except, instead of me coming and taking up an offering and having y'all support me as I shared the gospel with you, other churches did it. So the only thing that you were robbed was the chance to support me. He's like, I'm sorry that I didn't ask you for anything. You can kind of hear that sarcasm there. He says, the signs were performed. All the signs that they needed, all the signs that the other churches had in their midst were performed there among them by the Apostle Paul. Signs mean miracles, wonders, the, the miracles in the sense of the effect that they have on the people, of the people being awestruck, and the mighty works of God were all done in their midst. And remember, that's the purpose of the sign gifts. Now, I, you know, I'll probably surprise people. Uh, I, you know, I don't call myself a continuationist or a cessationist. That's kind of a debate that there, there exists in uh, theology is do the gifts that the apostles had, did those gifts continue? I'm talking about the gifts. I'm not saying miracles. I mean, we, we can... Uh, most definitely understand that God still works miracles uh, and God can do things that are supernatural and unusual in our midst, but the question is, do we know someone who has the gift of healing? Someone who can walk up to someone and just like your gift may be service or hospitality or, or, or generosity, that their gift is healing so that when they walk up to someone and lay hands on them, they're healed. Or that they are able in themselves to speak in unknown tongues. Okay? So do we know someone that has the gift when they're speaking with someone who doesn't speak English, uh, maybe they speak uh, Chinese or something, that they're able to speak Chinese, that's the gift of tongues. It's a clear miracle. Okay? If I walk up to you and I say, hoda, boda, 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 or whatever, that's not really miraculous. Okay? Anybody can talk baby talk. And if you want to talk baby talk to God, that's your prerogative. I have a baby that lives in my house. She talks baby talk, and I love it. But it's not a language. <laughs> it most certainly does not communicate anything intelligible, except that maybe she's trying to say she loves me. I hope so. Usually she's just trying to say, can I have another fruit snack or something like that. 
But this is a, these are particular gifts, prophecy, uh, tongues, the gift of healing. These were gifts that the apostles had. And why did the apostles need these gifts? If I walk into a town where no one's ever heard of Jesus and I say, hey, I'm from Judea. We had a guy who had a, a ministry for three years. He healed people. He was able to feed people with just a little bit of food. He could feed lots of people. And then he died on a cross and he rose again. And we're asking you to believe in him. Now, if you go to just some random city in the Roman Empire, what are they going to think about that? What's this guy talking about? But if you came into the city and you were able to speak their language when you obviously were from another country, if you were able to heal people and you, you had the gift of healing and, and you were affecting miracles, signs, wonders, that what, what, why do we call it a sign? Because the sign was pointing not just to like these, that, that God wants you to be healed. What was the point of the sign? It was to point people to the truth of the gospel. That's what the signs were. That's why Jesus did miracles. To prove that he was who he said he was. Okay, so, so people would just assume, I think people would assume in me, they would say, well, Chad just doesn't think those gifts exist anymore. I, I don't go that far. Okay? What it seems to, to, to have happened in the history of the church, if you read about the history of the church, it seems as though there was a time where those sorts of signs fell off. Even preachers in the third century were remarking, we don't see the types of things that were happening in the early church happening now here in the third century. Why would that be? Because the church became established. Because the word of God was written down by the apostles and the church had the word of God. Okay? So does that mean that God can't do a miracle right now? No, most certainly God can do a miracle. And we can pray, we can get together, and I may not have the gift of healing, but if you're sick, I will lay hands on you and I will ask God to heal you. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say that you know, God's in control and I certainly don't have the gift of healing. Uh, can prophecy take place now? You know, I've preached up here before and when I got off and I thought, oh, well, that's a terrible sermon. And I think most preachers feel that way after every sermon. But you get, you get off the platform and someone walks up and you say, how did you know to say that? How did you know to speak about this thing? I didn't, I just prepared my sermon, but it, in a sense, it spoke right to somebody's heart and a need that spoke right to them. So, uh, but that doesn't necessarily make me a prophet in, those, in that sense. Just God can do unusual things, but as far as those sign gifts, uh, I, I kind of follow my, my theology professor, Malcolm Yar Yarnell. He said, don't be a continuist, don't be a cessationist, because God can do anything he wants. If he wants to start the gifts back up, he could. And, and, of course, and I've not ever been everywhere in the whole world. Like, I don't know that I have enough knowledge to declare something like that. He said, be open, but be cautious. Be open to that God can do anything, but be very cautious. Don't just assume that these things are still happening unless you, you, you see that they're still happening. Okay, that someone still has this gift. Okay, not miracles, but, but the gift. Some people think, oh, y'all Baptists, y'all don't think that miracles happen anymore. No, no, that's not what we believe at all. Many of us would just say that those gifts seem to be reserved for the apostles and perhaps their associates as the church was being born, and we've seen those wane, and we have to be very careful because there are people that will declare that they have these gifts, and, and yet there's just no proof. People will talk about healings and things like this, and yet it, it almost seems sadly to say this like wishful thinking. 
but um, that, they would, that they would have the gift or this ability. But we should always be praying for God to do miraculous things. And remember, the greatest miracles are happening all the time when God changes people's hearts. You know, the greatest miracle is that we love one another. Because are we, are we born, are, are we made, or, or I should say this, yes, we're made to love one another, but we've been broken by sin. And so the greatest miracle should be happening all the time whenever we love one another. When people that are bent towards selfishness empty themselves, that is a miracle. And remember, if you've been to the new member class, remember we talk about that, that that is the thing that amazes the angels in heaven. When they know how bad people are, but when they see a church loving each other and loving Jesus, that amazes them, which is in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So Paul is talking about the proof that he had as an apostle, that he had these gifts. And he says that he had performed these works among them, the signs that were pointing to the truth of his message. He did it with utmost patience. So he worked patiently with them to demonstrate the power of God among them to where they lacked nothing. And the only thing they didn't have, again, was the burden of paying for the the ministry. And so he's going to continue that. Look, he says, here's my plan, verse 14 and 15. Here for the third time, he says, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. He's still not going to ask them to pay for his missionary work. I will not be a burden. And look at this next sentence here. For I seek not what is yours, but I seek you. That's an unusual kind of love, isn't it? I don't seek what is yours. I'm not coming because of what you can do for me, but I love you. That's an amazing thing that he says there. I would like for that to hit us like a ton of bricks. That's the way Paul's describing his love for this church. It's not, what have you done for me lately? It's, I I love you. And that's the way God loves you too. Is there anything you can really do for God? Does he really need you? Think about it. There's all these billions of people on the planet. You're just one. You don't even live very long. You know, you're not very strong. You sin every single hour. Maybe you sin every single minute if you're like me. I don't get up in the morning and think, oh, there's all this stuff I can do for God. And so God isn't loving you because of what you, what you can do for him. He loves you because he loves you. That he's known you since before the foundation of the earth. He loved you in Christ Jesus. He will love you for all eternity, not because of what you're going to do for him, but because he loves you. Just the way Paul's talking about his love for the Corinthians, like a father's love for a children. I think a lot of times our children might think, well, you don't love me if I don't make A's. You don't love me if this, if this, if this. No, we want our children to be successful. But in the end, why do we love them? We love them because of who they are. We love them because they're our children. We love, we, and, and we have all this, it's so strange that we have all this knowledge of our children that they don't even have about themselves. You remember the first five years of your life? You don't remember that. You might have a vague memory or two of a few things. But, you know, you think about, you know, as a parent, you know, you, especially mothers, I think, just are on another level with this. But you remember it talked about how Mary treasured all these things in her heart whenever the, the wise men came and the shepherds came and all that. That's what women do, isn't it? That's what y'all do. 
And you see, you know, here's, I'm just looking at a family here. Here's Lori sitting next to her little girl. And she remembers things about Samantha that Samantha doesn't even remember. And it feels like yesterday, doesn't it? It's amazing. You know, the way that we love our children. Not because she's done all the right things. She married a really good-looking guy. Like, there's all these things, right, you could say about Samantha. But you just remember those moments. It was just you and her rocking her in the middle of the night, right? Hmm. But isn't that a be- doesn't that beautifully illustrate what Paul says here? I don't seek what's yours. I seek you. That's, that's Christian ministry, isn't it? That's giving yourself. That's like a mother's love in the middle of the night when she really wants to be sleeping. And she gives herself for that child. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents. But parents for their children. You know, you get to a certain age. Now that I'm even past middle age... You know, it used to be you always looked forward to going out to eat with your parents because they would, they would buy the food, right? So it's like you're going to get something a little more expensive. Wait till you're out to eat with your parents. And uh, they'll buy the food. And then your parents retire. That's a terrible day. <laughs> They're like, we're on a fixed income now. But you know what? They'll still buy their own food. They just want you to buy yours. <laughs> Why is that? Because the parents are saving up for the children. The, the parents, are, they feel an obligation not to be a burden to their children, but to leave something for their children. And I'm just saying to my in-laws and to my parents, don't save anything up for us. You just spend it all. Enjoy it. Give it all to Medicaid or Medicare or whatever, you know. But Paul's saying, I feel that burden of a dad, of a parent for you, that I'm here to serve you. I'm here to save for you. I feel an obligation to you, church. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. And look at verse 15, so beautiful. Maybe this would be the key verse of our whole sermon. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Oh, man. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? You, know, you can feel that hurt in his heart there. I will most gladly, though, even the way they've treated him this whole time, they've been terrible. He says, I'm coming a third time. First time he came, um, he planted the church. The second time he came, he called it the painful visit, which prompted the tearful letter that we don't have. And then t- he sent Timothy down there with that tearful letter, that awful letter, where he, where he really had to tell them what was going on and where they needed to repent, and they responded to it. Timothy came back and said they read that tearful letter, and they responded the right way. And Paul's excited. I'm going down a third time to come and see you, and I'm coming down like Dad. I'm coming down here not because I want something from you, but because I want you. I'm glad to spend myself and to be spent for your souls. He has optimism as he comes down. And there will be many there that will want to receive Paul. But he truly desires for this church to rid itself of the sin. To rid itself of its support for false teachers. He wants them to repent. Or he wants them to discipline those who won't. And he's going to pay his own way because he's there for them, not what they can do for him. In verses 16 through 19, we see Paul defending the purity of his ministry. He says, I did not burden you... I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Now, you you wonder, well, how do we know exactly what was going on? A verse like that really kind of tells you, doesn't it? 
He says, you say this. What, what were they accusing him of? Of being crafty. Of being a liar. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming to your church? He's oh, he's just trying to get our money. He's crafty. He's a liar. <clears throat> That's what the Corinthians were saying about Paul. They're saying that he's a liar and that he's crafty. And what is Paul saying about them? I will most gladly spend my life and be spent for you, for the sake of your soul. I don't seek what is yours. I seek you. He says, did I take advantage, verse 17, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? No. I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? They liked Titus, but for some reason they didn't like Paul. And so he's saying, I was just like Titus. Did we not take the same steps? We kind of can understand what's going on there in their rejection of the apostle and how, how wild it is that they accused him of trying to take something from them when the whole time he never even asked them for anything. And then in verse 19 he says, And so do you think all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Have we been trying just to prove or justify something to you? No, he says, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And for your upbuilding, the whole purpose of all of this has not been to defend ourselves, but that you might grow in Christ when you accept our ministry. Paul's not justifying anything he's done. He's not trying to justify himself just to the church. He's defending his apostleship, yes. He's defending his Jewishness, yes. He's defending his suffering, yes. But he's not doing it to just make himself justified. He's doing it that they might be built up in Christ. Paul, it may seem like he's trying to build himself up, but we know he's not. He says, I'm doing this for your upbuilding, beloved. And so when he makes this visit, after he's sent this letter, um, he's anxious. He's, I said Paul's fear, Paul's phobia, verses 20 through 21. He's anxious that they will not respond in the right way. He mentions he's afraid two times. One in time in verse 20, one time in verse 21. Look at this. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. He's like, I don't want to come down and find y'all acting like this. And you don't want me to come down and find you acting like this. He says, because I fear that when I come, God may humble me. God may break me before you. And I may be mourning over many of those who sinned earlier and who have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they've practiced. Can you imagine that? Paul saying, you don't want me to come down here. You want me to come down here with a great attitude. Everything's going to be fine. But I don't want to come down there and find y'all acting like this and I'm just a broken man and I'm weeping all the time because of your church and the way that you're acting. It'll pain Paul to see them remain in their sin. Does it pain you to see yourself remaining in your sin? Does our own sin pain us? If Jesus Christ came in and did it, you know, we had a, we had a home inspection this week for CPS. But it, but, so we're, we're licensed as a foster home through Presbyterian Children's Home Services, I think is what it's called. Is that right, Crystal? PCHAS is what they call it for short. 
So usually we deal with Amber Hammond, you know, and she comes in and we, we just make sure that we go down the checklist and we've got, you know, the, the uh, we, we have to hang the phone number to the ombudsman. And we have a 15-month-old in the house, but if she needs to call the ombudsman, I always make that available to her. Uh, do you need to call somebody if you have a dispute? Uh, we have to put the, uh, the escape route on all the doors. So we have 10 maps in our home with the floor plan of the house with all the escape routes that are listed. We did fire drills the other night, and Adelaide was like, this is so stupid. And, uh, you know, meet at the mailbox. So we just kept practicing the fire drills over and over again, just basically because it was making Adelaide upset. But uh, <laughs> they came in and looked at the medicine. Do you have any expired medicine? They want to make sure where the ammunition's stored, where the guns are stored. They go look in your closet. Nothing's off limits, right? They can look at every part of your house. What if Jesus came in and inspected every part of your heart? You know? It's a, it's a humbling thing to, to try to get your house ready for someone to walk into every single part of it. The we grieve over our sin. If Paul went down there, how would he find the church? If Christ comes and looks in our heart, what is he going to see? It makes Many of y'all have read that, My, My Heart, Christ's Home. Uh, you can look that up later if you haven't read it, but... I know I've told you all about that before, but that's very convicting. We don't want to have one closet in the house that's off limits to Jesus, do we? Oh, you can go everywhere, Jesus, but don't go in here. I'm hanging on to this because it makes me feel good to be a gossip and a liar and a slander or whatever it is, you know, whatever our sin is. But Paul is going to be pained for them to remain in their sin. Will he have to come and mourn over their strife and their jealousy and their anger and their lying and their disorder and their sexual sin and their lust and their sensuality? Or will they do what is necessary to bring their church and their lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Paul's heart is on display here. I'm happy to be spent for you. I'm happy to be spent for you, he says. There are few people that will love you that way, the way Paul loves this church. He loves them like they're his children. And there are very few people that will say, I will gladly be spent for you. But let me tell you of one who said that for you. His name is Jesus. And he went to the cross and was laid out there on that cross and hung between heaven and earth saying to you, I'm doing this gladly for any sinner who will come and put their faith and trust in me. Why would he love you like that? Why would we love like that? Only if we've been changed by him. Only if we're compelled by that very same love of Christ who desired to obey his father, who desired to save a people for himself, who would be glorified in that act of passion. Are we compelled by that love of Christ? Are we willing to be spent for sinners? If you're not a believer, I pray you're amazed by that idea that Jesus Christ would be willing to die for you. That kind of selflessness, that kind of self-emptying, to think that the very Son of God would come and empty himself to save you. It's remarkable. 
God could have washed his hands of us a long time ago, but he didn't. He kept patiently loving, and then one day he said, Son, go get my children. I should say he said, Go save my children. One day he'll say, Go get them. But that's how God loves us, isn't it? And for those of us who believe, let's ask the hard questions. Do I love people because of what they can do for me? Or do I love people for who they are? Am I willing to be spent? Am I willing to spend for others that they might know Jesus? That they might be built up? That's ministry. Remember, you empty the pocketbook when you spend your money. You empty the calendar when you spend your time, but you empty yourself when you spend your life. That is ministry. Following Jesus, a lifetime of spending yourself for others.